From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today we wrap up Plastic Week by exploring how daily routines in landlocked Colorado could add to the plastic pollution in the oceans, hundreds of miles away. Then a theater performance for inmates by inmates. We're learning how to talk to each other, relate to each other in a way that is not prisony, I guess you could say. Plus, immigration, undocumented residents, mental health, and suicide. Nothing's off limits as the Fox Theater in Aurora opens its new season. And a local author delves into the complexities of the justice system for Native Americans. About one-third to half of the time, federal investigators decline to prosecute these cases, which means that violent offenders are free to go out and offend again. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Plastics. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. Black and plastic. It's fantastic. We wrap up Plastic Week today with a campaign whose name might make you do a double take. The Inland Ocean Coalition is based in Boulder. Inland and ocean don't sound like they go together, but they do, says Vicki Nichols Goldstein, who founded the coalition. She discovered how much inland states, including Colorado, impact oceans. Take plastic pollution, for example. Her group educates people who don't see the coast every day how they can advocate for the ocean's health. Hi, Vicki. Good morning. How often do you get puzzled looks when people when you tell people that you're protecting oceans from Colorado? Frequently. They look at me and say, what, are you a little late? 63 million years ago, we had an ocean. <laughs> so it takes a little bit of time to explain to them, but um, the ocean is so important to us, and we significantly impact the ocean from Colorado. And what's something Coloradans do that contribute to impacting the ocean? I'm thinking particularly of plastic pollution. Yeah, that's one of them. So our single-use plastics have really been increasing over the years, and it is impacting the environment. And if you think about the rivers, they are our conduits to the ocean. So anytime you have plastics that end up in your yard, in the street, it gets run over, plastic bags, they can eventually make their way into waterways and then flow into the ocean. And the ocean is also connected to us here. The oxygen that we breathe, it comes from ocean-producing plants, and the open ocean produce, absorbs much of the carbon. Um, so let's put the plastic problem in perspective. How much is there in the ocean right now? There is about 8 million tons of, ocean, or of plastic that goes into the ocean every year, which is significant. And I want you to pause for a moment because we have large fishing nets that are in the ocean that don't break down, plastic bottles, things that you can see. But what people are missing are those small fragments called microplastics. And for example, if you wash one of your fleece jackets, you'll have about 100,000 pieces of fibers, plastic fibers, that go from your washing machine into the wastewater treatment facility. And they don't have the capacity to pull out those very tiny fibers. So you're getting, or we are getting, just billions of small microplastic fibers going into our streams and creeks that will eventually go into the river. And so we're now talking about, oh, yeah, there are 10 major rivers in the world contributing. 
we haven't really done an analysis with inland streams to see what our contribution is. So I think there's more to it than meets the eye. Do we have an idea, though, of how much of these microplastics are coming from inland places? Well, we know that there have been some studies, and actually we are in the middle of a microplastic study in collaboration with CU Boulder and really trying to get an understanding. But we certainly know that one jacket will produce that much. And then think about all the yoga pants and the other materials that are made from polyester or a plastic base. So it's significant, and we're hoping to get some some quantifiable evidence pretty soon. And Colorado's daily habits, they impact the oceans in other ways, too, not just with plastic pollution, right? Yeah, well, think about what you eat. And many people love seafood, and there are many ways that you can harvest seafood that will contribute to bycatch, meaning killing other animals that really aren't intended. So what we're trying to do is educate people. If you're going to eat seafood— Find out which ones are sustainably harvested and which ones have good populations. So you could, there's apps out there. We're a partner with the Monterey Bay, uh, excuse me, the Monterey Aquarium Seafood Watch. So there's resources. But it's just think about what you eat. Think about the impact that you have on the environment. And you really can make some significant positive contributions. I want to go back to the plastic question just for a moment. These are really small pieces of plastic, but I am imagining that they do add up. Is most of the plastic in the ocean micro-sized? At this stage, it is. And we know there are five major gyres. And people have said, oh, they're the size of Texas. They're the size of five Texans. But what we're really seeing in the ocean is more of a plastic smog than an actual island. And that is because plastic photodegrades. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It never really goes away. So it is in our oceans, and it's being taken up by fish and then moving up the food chain. And again, we're just starting to get a real understanding as to the impact plastic is having on the marine environment and our health. So there's sort of a plastic soup in the ocean that we can't see, even though we can see those really dramatic, big floating piles of plastic. Correct. Um, So here's a tricky one. How is someone who's big on composting contributing to plastic in the ocean? That is a great question. I think everyone who wants to do their part will compost, but there's been some big mistakes. So one example is your milk carton. And people think, oh, that milk carton is compostable. It's covered in wax. No, it is covered in a plastic coating. So when you are composting materials that have plastic in them, they're going into the soil. Those tiny pieces of plastic, again, break down in the soil, whether it's, you know, underground, on the land, and then they eventually will get washed into waterways and creeks and rivers and eventually the ocean. Wow, that's really tough. And I imagine, I, I always think of composting as such an environmentally friendly thing to do at all points. Um, Colorado has a big oil and gas industry. How do fracking and ocean pollution connect? Oh, they are very connected. So with the increase in fracking, we are getting liquid gas, ethane, ethane. And what is happening is we are then converting that to a single-use plastic pellet. The industry is 
recognizing this fracking boom as a renaissance. And so they are producing and opening up new petrochemical plants to process this liquid gas into the feed source for single-use plastics. So while we as a community are trying to reduce our single-use plastics, the industry is really gearing up for expansions. And this is a really personal issue for you. I understand that you once had a unique Halloween costume related to conservation. (laughs) Yes, I was a storm drain once. (laughs) (laughs) How, How does that work and why? Well, I was directing Save Our Shores, which is an organization in Santa Cruz. And people don't recognize that storm drains really are a big part of our lives. Everything that happens on land, like whether you're throwing out cigarette butts or plastic or using chemicals in your yard, after a rain or a snow, all of that washes into the closest storm drain, which then goes right to your creek unfiltered. So I thought it was appropriate to be a storm drain. And it was actually pretty fun. So I might have to bring that costume back in the next couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) I think one major takeaway that I'm hearing from storm drains to oil and gas to composting is everything we do affects the ocean in some way. And that seems overwhelming. Obviously, people can't change their entire lives overnight. So what are some of the most significant ways that Coloradans can help protect the ocean? We can do a lot. We can reduce our single-use plastics by carrying bottles and bags that are metal and reusable. Um, We can also get very involved in letting our legislative leaders know that it is important that when they represent us in D.C. on the Hill— that they should be voting pro-water and pro-conservation. And right now we have Senator Cory Gardner, who is the chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Oceans. And I'd love to nudge him to be a little bit more active in his ocean protection strategy in his his position. So that's one thing. And then, of course, just being careful about um, your daily habits, Go organic. Be careful with the chemicals that you use. Don't toss trash in cigarette butts. Maintain your car because approximately one gallon of oil goes into the environment if you don't maintain your car properly. And again, right through those storm drains and into the water. Um, But we really can do a lot. And if you think about getting hundreds of thousands of people aware and taking those small little steps and then supporting good policies and regulations, we absolutely can save oceans from a mile high. Vicki Nichols-Goldstein founded the Inland Ocean Coalition based in Colorado. Find all our Plastic Week stories at CPR.org and follow Ryan's Plastic Diary of Shame on Twitter at CPR Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Half the people released from prison in Colorado will find themselves back behind bars. That recidivism rate is well above the national average. Among the challenges people face after incarceration, reentry to society demands soft skills, like appropriate emotional expression, compromise, and determination. The University of Denver's Prison Arts Initiative makes space for inmates to practice those skills through theater. I attended a recent theater performance by inmates for inmates. Gather around, ladies. Welcome to the Combine. 
you are about to enter Sterling Ward, our therapeutic community. I am Dr. Spivey, Ward Psychiatrist. This is our head nurse, Ms. Ratched, Nurse Flynn, Aides William, and Warren. Please follow all rules and regulations while on the ward. Remain seated and please try not to disturb the patients. Women dressed in yellow shirts and green pants, the uniform for Denver Women's Correctional Facility inmates, filter into the prison's rec center. Just past the doors, actors greet them and invite them into the world of the play. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Now, the unusual thing here is the actors are inmates of Sterling Correctional Facility. That's one of the highest security men's prisons in the state. Despite the guards posted around the room for safety, the prisoners are running the show. With the direction and assistance of the DU Prison Arts Initiative, they transformed the gym into a psychiatric ward. It's theater in the round, so the audience sits in folding chairs within the three painted walls of the set, and the actors perform in the middle. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a tale of institutionalized psychiatric patients and their power struggle with Nurse Ratchet, a controlling woman who runs the ward with an iron fist. If that seems a little on the nose for a play performed by men who are incarcerated, that's on purpose. Ashley Hamilton directs the play and founded DU Pi. It's historical. It's dated. There are things that are not at all accurate to the prison system today. Um, but it also does sort of remind us of our history in the U.S. and around institutionalization and mental health. And that is very much intertwined with the prison system. Um, but it's a meaty, rich text. And it brought a lot of converse, good conversation, hard conversation. Um, and there's also just really incredible humans and characters in this, in this play that we were excited to bring to life and tell their stories. The dynamics that are going on in that room, in the cuckoo's nest, in the psych ward, I've been in, in prison for 10 years, and I've, I've seen these behaviors, I've seen these things, all these things. That's Brett Phillips, one of the inmates of Sterling Correctional Facility. He's serving a 38-year sentence for second-degree murder. He plays the main character. R.P. McMurphy, the gambling, authority-bucking new patient on the psychiatric ward who galvanizes the other patients to rebel against the authoritarian nurse Ratchet. Phillips says in real life, he's a lot less talkative than his character. But acting on stage has helped him communicate offstage. We're learning how to talk to each other, relate to each other in a way that is not prison-y, I guess you could say. You know, um, learning that anger is not the only emotion that we can show emotion, we can show hurt and fear and all these things and, uh, and you know, and be touched by things without having to, to be, have a stigma around it, you know what I mean? Because it's not unmanly to cry. It's not unmanly to cry. And that expression has forged deeper relationships between inmates, even inmates who wouldn't traditionally get along. I know a couple of people before this that I knew were in, in gangs and, and uh, there's people that are stepping back. There's people that are, you know, saying not maybe they're like, eh, I don't really want to get in, be in on that right now, you know. And so, yes, uh, it definitely, um, it definitely seems to be erasing those lines and blurring them for sure. Maybe not erasing, but blurring them for sure. Luke Barella created music and sound effects for the play. He's been incarcerated since 2006 for assault and attempted murder, and his next parole hearing is scheduled for 2035. With the possibility of release so far down the road, it's easy to fall into what he calls the boundaries of prison. Defined relationships, or lack of relationships, between prison staff, inmates, and people on the outside. Like Phillips, he saw boundaries blurred during rehearsals and performances. It developed like a sense of 
community, like a sense of acceptance, you know, and a sense of responsibility, a sense of doing good for others. And I think that was transformative. What kind of transformation? Specifically, it encouraged him to set goals. One of the goals that I set is to, you know, to get parole and complete parole, you know. And I think that's very important. And, you know, when you're working on completing parole, you know, you're working on getting a job. You know, you're working on saving up to buy a house. And if you could get those, maybe even start a family, you know. So I started really thinking about what I want to do for a living. Arts programs in prison are nothing new, but the Colorado Department of Corrections did take an unprecedented step when it asked Hamilton to take the play on tour. After several performances at Sterling Correctional Facility, the cast and crew traveled to Lyman, Colorado, and to the Denver Women's Correctional Facility to perform for the staff and inmates of those prisons as well. Warden Ryan Long oversees the Denver Women's Facility. He said bringing theater performances into the prison helps humanize the situation. And so do interactions between prison staff, civilians, and men and women incarcerated at different facilities. Although it brings up hard conversations and potentially emotions um, that aren't always at the surface, it, they come, they've come in a positive way and it spurs positive conversations, um, positive impact, personal accountability, and like those things, empathy and sympathy that aren't necessarily always something that's on the forefront of your emotional toolbox when you're incarcerated. An inmate of the Women's Correctional Facility said the same thing a different way after the performance, when the cast and crew took questions and comments from the audience. It's amazing because it gives hope, it gives determination, it brings all these new horizons, not just for us in here, but for people out there as well. And it also gives people who are in these sort of things a pathway to find out who they are. And us as people we need to come together more often to bring each other up. The way Hamilton sees it, arts education is about growth and rehabilitation more than entertainment. And the value extends beyond prison walls. You know, we talk a lot about this um, inside. It's not just about like, let's do these cool, fun things. Like, let's do a fun play. It's not that. It's about how can we use these different efforts to set people up to be successful to come home. 95% of people who are currently incarcerated are going to go home. Um, They're going to you know, be our neighbors, they're going to work with us. And we want folks to come home feeling set up to be successful so that they can stay home and so that no more harm can be caused. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the first play in the country performed by inmates to go on tour to other prisons. And a second is already in the works. Women from the Denver Women's Correctional Facility are already rehearsing Christmas Carol, which will be ready in time for the holidays. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Immigration and undocumented residents are very much in the news these days. So are issues like mental health and suicide. Each are addressed in the season opening production at the Fox Theater in Aurora. Miss You Like Hell is a musical. It's written by Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Chiara Alegria Judas, and it opens tonight. 
It's directed by Helen R. Murray, who is also the executive producer at The Fox. Helen, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me back. We're also joined by two leads in the performance. Jury Henshaw plays Beatrice. Adrian Lee Robinson is cast as her daughter, Olivia. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Helen, the play tells the story of Beatrice, an undocumented immigrant who arrives in Philadelphia to convince her estranged daughter, Olivia, to join her on a cross-country road trip to California. Along with their story, there are also the people that they meet along the way as they drive across America. Did you pick this for the season opener specifically because of today's political climate? I mean, I would... It would be silly to say that didn't somehow enter into my thinking at that time. But the main reason I picked it is because it's a fantastic piece of musical theater. I've always been a fan of Kiara's and Aaron's, who uh, Aaron McEwen wrote the music for it. Um, And it's such a strong piece uh, all the way around. And I'm always looking for stories that tell... uh, that tell a narrative from a different perspective. So when the rights became available, I pounced on it before anybody else could grab it, quite frankly. Um, it, it's such a beautiful story. And also, we're telling a story of a mother and daughter. And actually, our season at the Aurora Fox is bookended with stories about mothers and daughters. Miss You Like Hell right now, and we're ending up with Freaky Friday, another mother-daughter tale. Um, and getting to tell a story in that familial perspective, I felt like was a great way to kick off the season. Yes, it deals with undocumented status and the issues surrounding that and our immigration issues in the country today. But it also, at its heart, is a story about a mother and daughter and very much a love letter to America. I know that might not seem like the way you would think about it, a show that deals with immigration, but you can see from the writer's perspective in the script that they really care about this country and they wanted us to see that because then we understand more and more why people want to be here. Jari, what attracted you to this project? Oh, um, Kiara's work is always attractive to me. Um, uh, it was exciting to um, get to be a, a part of uh, the the new um, energy at, at Aurora Fox and, and Helen's work, um, what she's um, you know doing to continue the work that Aurora has always done to try to stay connected to the community. Um, and then, of course, you know, specifically this role um, just brings so much um, direct connection to to things that that truly matter to me, but also are part of my own personal culture. So it's just been it's just been a, a really wonderful experience to be part of. And I imagine you still had to audition to get the part. I assume was it a case of you saying that you just had to get this role? Uh, in in some ways, it felt fateful because uh, I have been in a couple of Kiara's plays previously and, and fell in love with her that way and therefore was kind of following what she was up to and saw that she was in development with this. Um, so to watch it sort of take shape and and think, oh, my gosh, wouldn't that be great to like maybe one day bring bring here and then suddenly look up and Aurora Fox had already optioned it. And it was like, oh, Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Is this the moment? Is this the moment where you've been watching something take like you, you know, become a thing and then you actually get to be part of it? Like it, so, yeah, it, it, it was cool. Um, and, and yes, yeah, I had to audition for it. Um, and I don't remember making any sort of plea to uh, <laughs> to Helen and saying, please cast me. This is my fate. But um, I might have. <laughs> Adrian, I'm wondering if you had the same feeling. Um, a little bit. Uh, I have to be completely honest. I did not know the show was a musical when I sent in my tape. 
it was actually a surprise once I had gotten cast. <laughs> Helen's sitting here like, okay. Um, but I think I was very excited to be a part of this once I, you know, educated myself on the piece because it's very rare for me to get to play a role that encompasses my culture that is not West Side Story or In the Heights. And this is a very real play about real people. And it's exciting to represent somebody that, you know, might be very well sitting in the audience. And I think that you have this interesting dynamic where, Jerry, you feel like you're really destined to play this role. And Adrian, you're working on bringing this to it as well. Um, Helen, as the director, how do you work to with these ideas? Like, do you have how do you lead Adrian to this place where she can where she can see, oh, this is why I got cast for this? Mm. Well, first of all, both I love it when actors come in or, you know, I see them and they just take the role. So there's no question mark. I don't have to sit there and weigh uh, all the different uh, actors in the room. I go, oh, no, they took it. They just uh grabbed it from the get-go, and both of these ladies did. The fact that you didn't realize it was even a musical Surprise. at the beginning. <laughs> no, I think I think uh, our, our our casting associate actually told me that, and I was like, oh, can you let her know? But I, uh, he sent me all of your music, uh, of you singing, and so I was very well aware of the capacity that you had to hit these songs <laughs> so hard because there is, uh, it's almost anthem-like, uh, the uh. singing in the show. These Both of these ladies, they could give rock concerts. I mean, that's how strong these two are. So uh, it, it's easy when you are gifted with this kind of talent. Uh, I, I always think of directing as half of it is just good casting. And it's not just these two ladies. They are backed up by a really tight ensemble. Amazing. Yeah, and they are on stage a lot of the show. And what is asked of them is a fluidness and a supportiveness that helps tell the story all the way throughout without ever detracting from it. And it's such a tight-knit group that brings such beauty and support to these two ladies. It's really, I've just I've just been so lucky. I adore this cast completely. Um, and to get them there, we have, you know, a lot of different parts of the process. Some of it is very technical. Even last night we sat, uh, you know, around a script looking at this one moment and how to find our way there and what that meant in the show and the arc of the show. So there's a lot of different ways. But I think that you rely on the talent in the room and find a common vocabulary to bring forward what they have to offer, especially for something like this where the roles are so incumbent upon the actor's understanding of it. It's not about me pushing an agenda. It is about me understanding their take on the role and highlighting it and having it compromise or meet up with my vision for the show as well. And and these ladies are complete pros. They're amazing. And Adrian, you say that now you've gotten to the point where there are moments in the show that you have to remember you're playing a role and it's not your own real life. Yeah. Uh, I think Olivia goes to very dark personal places during the show. And I mean, I can find myself stepping off stage feeling really shaken. Uh, and I think that can become an unhealthy habit if you don't learn to step back from it a little bit, especially, you know, the show is over. We've bowed. OK, I had a real experience and I hope it felt real to the audience, and I hope that people who suffer with anxiety and depression feel seen when they come see this show because I don't want it to come off um, as, you know, caricature or fake. I want it to be a real experience, but with it being and feeling so real, I do have to kind of separate it from my own life. That's a lot to juggle as an actor. Jury, we like we mentioned, there's a lot going on, immigration, depression, how much of this can be boiled down to the idea that it's a play about the relationship between a mother and a daughter? 
all of it can be boiled down to that. Um, because I think that's what Kiara does so well is um, she, of course, is a playwright of her time. And so um, she she hears and sees uh, what is happening in the world. But she writes plays about about people and she writes plays about families that are gutting it out together. Um, and so, you know, this th- this journey she, you know, she's so good at, at deciding uh, what sort of structure is going to inform. Sometimes, you know, I've been in a piece that is totally informed by the structure of music. Um, in this one, she's absolutely leaning into the structure of what is America? What is this landscape? And you see this, this they're on a road trip, but they're also on, you know, navigating their way back to one another. Um, and it is, it, it, it's it's beautiful the way um, she explores those two sort of parallel experiences. Oh, wow. so there's there's this very literal journey that they're going on, but also this relationship journey. Helen, I want to go back to this idea of the choices that you and the Fox Theater are making. Last season, you did a play, Hooded, or Being Black for Dummies, which was unexpected but became a big smash. Later this season, we're going to be there's going to be an immersive haunting held at the Fox. What's behind these choices that you're making? Uh, well, oh. what are you thinking? <laughs> what am I thinking? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking that I want to make sure that we reflect all of our community, not just some of our community. I want to make sure that the voices that are being put on the stage are are varied and diverse and speaking in many different ways. Our collective community narrative has to be inclusive if I'm really going to be in service to this community. And so all the work I do when I select it, it's not, I actually don't sit there and go, oh, this will really be a you know, a, a charged moment. I think what's the uni- unique perspective I can, I can put on this stage? I, I, I think I said at one point, um, and I'm going to attribute this to a lovely man, Michael Bobbitt, who ran Adventure Theater, a kids theater back east for a while, and now has moved on to another theater uh, a bit north. I can't remember which one he's at right now. But he said something about allyship and that um, being an ally is a wonderful thing. Um, but uh, but then he talked about more about advocacy. And I liked this idea that we've moved past the point where allyship is all we should do as artistic leaders. And we've moved to this place where the standard should probably be advocacy, advocating for voices, putting them front and center so that it's not just my perspective that is being shown from the stage, but the perspective of many, many different points of view that are uh, existing in our culture that might not be widely heard. So that's really what's behind it. It's not a me trying to be a big, you know, uh, mover and shaker saying, oh, look at all the crazy stuff we're doing. It's more just these stories are really cool, to put it in the words of Dree's seven-year-old son. Cool. <laughs> um, no, these stories are really, really cool amazing to listen to. The Immersive Haunting is because I saw Control Groups, uh, a couple of their productions, and they're so wild. Uh, so And Hooded, because it's a great story. These are all great stories, and you will find something for yourself in all of them. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hel- 
Helen R. Murray is the executive producer for the Fox Theater in Aurora and the director of the first production of its new season, Miss You Like Hell, opening tonight. We also heard from the two leads in the musical, Jury Henshaw and Adrian Lee Robinson. When we come back, an upcoming novel explores barriers to justice on Native American reservations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Over the years, Buck Angel has made a big name for himself in the adult film industry. And now his new career in California's legal cannabis industry comes with an important mission. That's why I started my company, so that we could educate people around cannabis and why it is so important, especially for the LGBT community. On the latest episode of On Something, Buck Angel and the untold story of medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. What happens when victims of crime fall through the cracks on American Indians' reservations? And what recourse do they have outside of the courts? David Heska Wambly-Wyden of Denver delves into barriers to justice for Native Americans in his upcoming novel, Winter Counts. He's a member of Sichangu Lakota Nation, and this weekend, the author and Metropolitan State University professor joins writers from around the globe at the Jaipur Literary Festival at Colorado in Boulder. He'll lead panel discussions to discuss American Indians and fiction and indigenous issues in North America. David, welcome to the program. It's my pleasure to be here. Winter Counts explores the complex interplay between tribal, state, and federal justice systems and what falls through the cracks. What led you to make that central to your novel? Well, I've been concerned with the problem of criminal justice on Native reservations for some time. And you can write as many social study uh, research papers as you want, but fiction and art have the chance to reach a lot more people. So as a writer, I decided to make this the central theme of the book because I've been aware of it and concerned about this for so many years. And tell me a little bit about what makes that a complex relationship. So the problem is, is on Native American reservations, you have overlapping jurisdictions between the federal government, state governments, and tribal governments. And they overlap and conflict. And this makes it exceptionally difficult to prosecute certain crimes, especially felony crimes. And what happens when it is difficult to prosecute? What makes it difficult to prosecute is a number of factors, but mostly what is known as the Major Crimes Act, a law that was passed in 1885 by the United States Congress. And the Major Crimes Act takes away the power of Native nations to prosecute crimes that occur on their own nations and involving their own people. What happens is that when a crime occurs on a Native reservation, tribal authorities must contact the FBI and federal prosecutors and refer the case to them. However, about one-third to half of the time, federal investigators decline to prosecute these cases, which means that violent offenders are free to go out and offend again. This is obviously a massive problem on Native reservations right now. And we'll get back into your novel and how that plays into your novel in just a moment. But you grew up in Denver and your mother was raised on the Rosebud Reservation. What was it like for you to live in two worlds, urban Denver and visiting the reservation? It was strange. Uh, I'm a Denver native. I grew up in the Swansea, Elyria neighborhood, which is one of the poorest and most challenged neighborhoods. But I love it. It's my home. And then later I moved to Aurora. And so I would live in these urban neighborhoods. And then I would travel during the summers to the reservation where I saw people even worse off than me. So it was strange to balance uh, sort of the urban lifestyle with the reservation lifestyle. So I never felt completely that I fit in either world. 
And tell me a little bit more about that. In what way? Well, when I would visit the reservation, they thought, uh, the kids there thought I was just fabulously wealthy, which was hilarious, of course, because we were quite poor. And so I just, I didn't feel, again, that I was really accepted for a lot of the native kids. Sometimes, you know, I was too urban or or because I'm mixed, I was, you know, maybe not 100% native. And then back home, I was viewed, obviously, in Denver as being, you know, one of the native kids. And so I didn't quite fit in. So it, it was, I very much felt as an outsider. But this is something that I think serves writers well. And do you still feel like you're living in two worlds? Very much so. Very much so. When I visit the reservation, you know, now it's it's different. I'm this author and all that, and and people want things from me, and they want me to do things. They want me to help them with certain causes, and I do as much as I can. So, yeah, the, the, the feeling of never fully fitting in either world is something that I think never escapes you. And how do you navigate that with your family and as a parent? That's a wonderful question. So I have two sons, ages 12 and 14, and I'm trying to raise them with as much of a native perspective as I can in Denver, Colorado, but it's not easy. So I'm constantly probing how much do I want them to assimilate? How much do I want them to fit in? And so it's uh, it really is a tightrope. Let's go back into Winter Counts. The main character, Virgil Wounded Horse, is a vigilante of sorts. What is his role in the community? Virgil Wounded Horse is the hero of my novel. Virgil Wounded Horse is a private vigilante. He is a hired thug. And the way that he works into my novel is when people can't get justice, say that a young woman is raped on the reservation and the perpetrator is caught but the federal authorities refuse to prosecute. Well, the people, the family want justice. And so they are going to hire somebody like my guy. They're going to hire Virgil Wounded Horse, and they pay him a sum of money to go out and get private justice. And his sum is $100 for each bone he breaks and $100 for each tooth he knocks out. He is based on real people on my reservation. And like you said, he's based on a real people, but you haven't actually met an enforcer necessarily So what kind of conversations are people having about enforcers? This is talked about very much in kind of hushed tones on the reservation. And so, no, I've not actually interviewed a private enforcer, but I've spoken with many people on my reservation and our neighbors, the Pine Ridge Reservation folks there. And I've learned about how they work and how they operate. It's not something that's widely publicized. It's kind of talked about very quietly, but they do exist. And that price is a real price that you've heard. It's a real price, but I I can't deny I have obviously dramatized uh, my character and his actions to make it more entertaining. So vigilante justice, that's a really complicated idea and one that's potentially it could cause harm. How do you balance that? That's a great question. So Virgil starts to question the morality of his chosen profession, and he's uncomfortable with it because he's a smart, self-aware guy. So I do think that the issue of vigilante justice is troublesome. And so that's the role of fiction is to grapple with these issues. And you're taking a look at this through fiction, but do you have personal experiences that made you want to write about this? I don't have any personal experience on the res. I've certainly been the victim of crimes here in Denver, but it's more the idea that a woman can be murdered or raped or a child can be harmed, and there's often no recourse for Native Americans on the reservation. It's this, these issues that just inflame me and made me wanted, want to write this book. In this novel, drugs, specifically heroin and methamphetamine, trickle into the reservation. Virgil's own nephew tries heroin, and that sets Virgil on a mission to track the drug cartel all the way from South Dakota to Denver. 
How do you see substance abuse affecting the community on Rosebud Reservation? It's a terrible, terrible problem right now on the Rosebud Reservation. Methamphetamine is the scourge of our people, and heroin, unfortunately, is making more inroads. I hate and despise those drugs, and so part of this novel is to bring awareness to the growing problem of drug addiction on reservations. We have very few resources for substance abuse counseling, and I just want people to know that it's a real problem on our lands, and so I'm hoping that this book can have a positive impact there as well. There are also negative stereotypes about Native communities and substance abuse. How do you tackle writing about drugs and addiction without strengthening those stereotypes? That is a wonderful question. And one of the choices that I made in this book is I my main character is a former alcoholic, but he is not a current alcoholic. I did not want to feed into those stereotypes of all natives being alcoholics. However, it would be foolish to turn my head away from the fact that drug abuse is a major problem on our reservations. Absolutely. And you call this book a meditation on Native identity. Can you tell me a little more about that? Sure. Virgil Wounded Horse, obviously I tapped into my own feelings of being, you know, an urban native. And so uh, Virgil struggles with being a mixed-race native. He is what we call an Ayeska. Ayeska in the Lakota language is somebody who speaks white, someone who is a translator. So he is both white and native And he struggles with this. How does he fit into the world? And over the course of the novel, he comes to terms with his own identity, and he ultimately accepts and reclaims his Native identity. That's sort of the arc of the book. And there is something important, too, about talking about a modern Native identity. Very much so. Uh, Natives today exist in a a strange space where we're the invisible minority in a lot of ways. We don't show up on a lot of TV shows unless it's something from the 1800s, some traditional Western. And so we're invisible in some ways you know, I, I like to say that that we belong everywhere and nowhere. And so, you know, these were originally our lands, you know, but on the other hand, we've obviously been pushed off of them onto these tiny little spaces. And so being a native in the 21st century means how much of your own native identity do you hang on to and how much do you accommodate and assimilate into the dominant culture? The name of the book, Winter Counts, it's more than a nod to the season. Can you tell me what Winter Counts are and why you chose it as a title? Absolutely. Winter Counts is the calendar system for the Lakota people. And rather than using numbers, it uses pictographs, little pictures. And so in the novel, uh, my hero, uh, Virgil, and his sister, Marie, when they're kids, they draw little pictures to mark the seasons. Uh, so Winter Counts refers to not only the calendar system used by Lakotas, but also by the fact that winter is a hard season for many natives. And in the book, it really is. Now, you're speaking at the Jaipur Literary Festival in Colorado. Are you going to be exploring these issues on the panels? I am. I'm speaking first uh, on Saturday with Kent Nurburn, who is one of the, the great non-Native writers who writes exceptionally well and sensitively about Native issues. Uh, his great book is Neither Wolf Nor Dog, and he has a whole series there, and I'm really excited to speak with him, and I will be reading a little bit of my fiction, and then later in the day, I'll be speaking with the Canadian political ph- philosopher John Ralston Saul, and we'll be exploring issues of how Indigenous identity and visibility varies in Canada and the United States. And what do you hope people who come to those panels come away with? I hope they learn a little bit about Native issues that they may not have known. Uh, I'm always surprised that folks are not aware of the boarding school system that flourished in the United States for 
uh, about 50 to 75 years, about 30 to 40 percent of Native kids were taken without their consent, a parent's consent, and shipped off to these boarding schools. My own grandmother was one of them. And people are also often surprised to find out that Native spirituality was criminalized, made a felony crime until 1978. These are just a few of the issues that I hope to explore this weekend. David, thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. David Keska Wambly Wyden speaks at the Jaipur Literary Festival Colorado, which is happening at the Boulder Public Library today and Saturday. Wyden is a professor at Metropolitan State University and author of the novel Winter Counts. It comes out next year. Finally today, music from a Texas-bred, Denver-based musician who likes to stay busy. Austin Carol Graffa plays with local acts Bud Bronson and the Good Timers and Grayson County Burn Band. Earlier this year, he released a debut solo EP. Perhaps that drive to create is why he titled the record Do It While You Can. He describes his style as campfire country or sweet and sour folk. I like to think of it as sort of, you know, sweet on the outside and sour in the middle. I like to think that these songs are approachable and, you know, you might be walking by a show of mine and you're hearing these songs and you're like, oh, that's cute and fun. Like, these are cool songs. But then, um, you know, maybe you start listening a little bit and you're like, oh, wow, OK, this is what we're talking about. This is what we're singing about. Rafa recently came to the CPR performance studio and shared his song, Rocky Mountain, Texas. It's a sort of a nostalgia song and thinking about the things that I really miss about Texas, but how, you know, when you have that adhesive of family and love and friendship that you can sort of, it's, it's mobile, you can kind of take it wherever you go. Well, Pap is drinking fresca, the ones no one else can drink. He's watching the hummingbirds with the dogs at his feet. And Barbara's doing all she can to keep the kitchen clean. But up here in Colorado, that's harder than it seems. We're a long way from Midland, but the best parts are here. The cards are being dealt, the smell of fish is in the air. A campfire still burning, ain't a TV inside. It's a Rocky Mountain, Texas. Singer-songwriter Austin Carol Graffa from Denver by way of Texas. His debut solo EP, Do It While You Can, is out now. Thanks for joining us today. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill, and you're with CPR News. And Carolyn's diet coat and Trey made Lexi cry. But that was all just a joke. You know what goes around, comes around as a Texas family owned. Oh.